Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Uh, because you visited Easter, welcome back. I hope we didn't scare you off last week or this week. That's really our goal. Don't scare the people away, all right? Uh, my name's Charlie. I'm the senior pastor. If you haven't met, come say hi after the service. If you've been here for a while or this is your first or second time, we do a thing before we get into the scripture. We have this rhythm or this phrasing that kind of guides our next 35 minutes or so. We say it like this, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. Every time we come together, we acknowledge that the ways of Jesus are so far and away different than the ways of our culture. That our culture asks us to be critics first and compassionate second. And when we come in this place, we change that mindset, recognizing that the Lord has a word for us today because God is here and he's active and he loves you. And so we use this guide to propel us into opening the scriptures that the move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And we start simply by saying the question today we're all asking is, what is God trying to tell me? How is he showing me more of his goodness in whatever text we're in today in Mark chapter 12? So we're going to start just by praying because praying oftentimes sets our expectations and aligns our hearts to the things we want to focus on. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that you pray quietly if if you're willing, uh, just that you might see and hear the Holy Spirit and that you might pray for me, that I might accurately depict the goodness of God this morning. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here in a chaotic culture, in a critical culture, to be in a place that, that resets our center. God, that's worthy of our worship, that asks us to find where God is being good to us and focus on that. Might that be the goal this morning? Holy Spirit, speak to our spirit this morning. If you're comfortable, I'd ask you to take a couple seconds and just ask that the Holy Spirit might move in your spirit this morning. I see you pray for me, that the Lord might use my preparation to show all of us more of how good he is and faithful he is to us, and to see what he's called us into collectively, so that we might show the world more of Jesus. Praise things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12 today. I think we live in an interesting time, we can always say that, but I feel like I've been on this earth 38 years, and I feel like now more than ever, society at large is vying for uh, ways to define me. I feel like this power, this battle of identity is powerful, and, and you're either, it's binary almost, you're something or you're something, right? I'm either a husband or a father, or I'm a pastor, or I'm politically conservative, or I'm politically liberal, or I'm defined by my sexuality or gender or lack thereof. I'm defined by something. Identity is a battle that society's trying to win over you. It's going to tell you what you are and whose you are so it can sell you stuff primarily. Identity is powerful. 
Because here's the truth. What defines you will drive you. In a couple weeks, I'm going to go on my first camping trip ever. You don't have to laugh at me. You do that after. Um, I, I'm going on my first camping trip. It's like a 30-mile, three-day, take-everything-with-you camping trip, and I'm very excited. And you have to understand, I come from a family where if the hotel door opened to the outside growing up, that was camping. So this is different. I've been watching this show called Alone to Prep. Do you know what that show is? It's basically where they get these survivalists that are dropped off in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and their whole goal is to stay as long as they can. We're talking 30, 60, 80, 90 days, and if they make it to the end and they're the last one, they win a million dollars. Basically, there's no difference between them and me, okay? There's this one ex-Marine that I really liked in the season I was watching. And he built this. You can, he, he taught survival techniques for the Marines. So he's my front runner going in. And he's making it a couple days. And he says, I'm here for my family. He said, I am first and foremost a father. I want to provide for my children. This will do that. And he builds this really cool shelter. And he starts catching all his fish. He builds himself a chair. He's the first person on the show I've ever seen build furniture. This guy is awesome, you know. And then about day 30, he just quit. And, and he said, it's really weird. He missed one of his kids' birthday, and he said, I'm a father. And what drove me here in the first place was being a father, but now I've been away from my kids for far too long. I have three weeks worth of food uh, out in the back, so it's not that I have to leave. He said, I just missed my kids, and it's not worth it anymore. What drives you, what defines you, will drive you. Him being a father the whole way through, it changes your goals because it's who you are. Today we talk about the point and purpose of identity in Christ. This great verse in 2 Corinthians, it says, if anyone belongs to Christ, he's a new person. The old has gone and the new has come. We started last week by talking about the power of the resurrection. The, the, the power of the resurrection makes possible the promises of God to you and me. The resurrection defines us as followers of Jesus. We serve an active God that promises things that will deliver. It's a beautiful depiction that we are defined not by death, but by life and all the other things that God promised us. And as followers of Christ, along the way, we have to recognize what actually defines us. And we've got to push back against the way the world tries to. So we're going to spend the next five weeks talking about that. We're going to take five lies that I think society tells us and talk about what Jesus says instead. And today, today is a good one for us in Flower Mound, Texas. Today is a lie that you are what you have. You're defined by what you own. And to do that, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. It's a story of a rich young ruler. It starts like this. It says, now, as Jesus was starting out on his way, someone ran up to him, fell on his knees, and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This story is found in three, in, in the synoptic gospel. Synoptic means see the same or same perspective. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke typically define things in the same way. John is a little crazy, and that's why we love him, all right? So you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they kind of tell stories, a lot of the same stories from the same perspective. This one's in all of them. In Mark, which we're at, it says somebody ran up. Matthew says that too. Luke actually says a ruler ran up. So let's talk about who this guy was. So, so we know that he was young, and we know that he was a ruler, which means we knew that, and they knew that he was wealthy. Because you know when a wealthy person walks up to you. You can tell by what they're wearing. You can tell by what phones they have. I remember I ran a youth group for a long time. We had this one girl show up one week that was not from around here, and she just said, I don't fit in. Look at the clothes they're wearing versus the clothes I'm wearing. And she could tell. 
you can most likely tell people's affluence by the way that they look and the way that they approach. So this man approached Jesus and all his people, and they could clearly tell that he was wealthy. And this is where I think we start to connect with this story. Because regardless of what your income is in this room, you're better off than 99% of the world. One of my favorite things to remember and focus on is just how much stuff we have. A couple stats out there. There are 300,000 average items in the American home. 300,000. You're thinking, that's not me. Count it. I have that many Legos at my house right now, all right? British research found that the average 10-year-old owns 238 toys but plays with just 12 daily. 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the toys globally consumed. Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods or the stuff that we absolutely do not need. Here's the thing. You can look at our culture and say a lot of things, but the one thing you have to acknowledge is that we have and we love stuff. We do. We like to own things. Either that looks like we keep buying things. I don't know about you guys, but Amazon pretty much lives in a room in my house. I've offered the guy a cot. You're going to be here tomorrow with seven more things. Just sleep right here. It'll make it easier for you, you know? We love to own stuff. And here's why I know it's not just something we do for fun. It's something we do that identifies us, that defines us. Because most times, in most cases, in a lot of these studies, what they look at next is can we actually afford the things we buy? Let's talk about debt in America. When you look at the numbers on debt, even though... The household net worth on America is in the rise. It was $141 trillion, uh, last summer, so is debt. The total personal debt in the U.S. is at an all-time high of $14.96 trillion. The average American debt per U.S. adult is $58,000, and 77% of American households have at least some type of debt. There's $15 trillion in debt overall, $1.57 in student loans, $11 trillion in mortgage debt, uh, 1.42 in auto loans and 787 billion in credit card debt alone. Eight out of ten adults in America have at least one credit card, and 45 percent of American households carry a balance. That means they don't pay it off at the end of the month. That's just over 55 million households with this kind of debt. The average credit card debt per household with this type of debt is $14,000, and the total of credit card debt is 787 billion. Now. This is not to guilt or shame or say, cut your credit cards. It's not my role in your life. I have credit cards and I love them. The question I ask is, why do we spend and keep buying things if we can't clearly afford things? It's a societal problem that we have. Some conservative estimates are saying that if you multiply the average credit card interest rate, which is about 17%, by the amount out there that the uh, actual credit card companies make $135 billion a year in net profit off interest alone, we have a society that likes our stuff even if we can't afford it. I think it goes beyond just we like Amazon packages. I think it defines who we're becoming. I think it's more tied into our worth and our value. There's a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and his people, and he said, good teacher. I think we can primarily connect with this character. So he says, and as our text starts, Jesus was starting out on his way. Someone ran up, fell on his knees, and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've been told this story for a long time. It might be new to you. It might not be new to you. This is one of the popular ones. And and for some reason, all the while I heard this, either how it was taught to me or what I believed about it, either what's inferred or implied, I always thought that this guy was a little, I don't know, uh, grimy, if you will. 
I, I thought that he was trying to pull one over on Jesus, or I thought the inheritance in the kingdom of God was just something else he could add to his list of stuff. But as I prepared and read through the text this week, I got an entirely different picture of who this man was. Since Jesus was starting on his way, someone ran up to him, fell on his knees, and yelled, Good teacher, how can I have eternal life? I think what you're going to see in this story is the absolute earnestness of this man. I think he's really wondering and really asking. Because Jesus and his followers started off going in a different direction, and this man ran up and stopped him. you got to want it. Where I went to college, uh, in downtown Chicago, all the teams that played the Bulls would practice at my gym. And growing up, I was a huge basketball fan. I thought I was good for a little while, and then I realized I'm not going past 5'9". There goes that dream. And my favorite player was Steve Nash. I had a little Lego man, Steve Nash, on my keychain. So at that point, he was playing with the Phoenix Suns, and they came and practiced at my gym. And sometimes they shut the gym down if there's really popular people. Sometimes you could watch them. Sometimes you could watch them from the track on the second floor. And I camped outside and waited for Steve Nash to get done with practice. And so it's just me. I'm waiting outside in Chicago. It's probably pretty cold. It's probably February or March. And all of a sudden, Steve Nash walks out. And I was like, this is my moment. And there's a team bus about 50 feet away. And Steve Nash is right there. And I'm right here. And you could clearly tell he didn't want to be bothered because he stepped outside, looked at me, and put his phone up to his face and started walking the other direction. What did I do? I did not care, everybody. All right? So I followed him and said, hey, hey, Steve, 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 Mr. Nash, Mr. Nash. And you could tell that he was kind of annoyed, but you could also tell that I wasn't going anywhere. And so he put his phone down and he said, hey, man, what's going on, right? You've got to want it to interrupt somebody going a different location in a different place and to stop him and his whole team that's waiting on the bus. This man really wanted to find out how he could find all the promises of God. He's earnest in his approach to, to, to how he's trying to find these things. And then he calls God good teacher. And Jesus replies in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. This phrase is one of the more difficult ones to interpret in the New Testament because it seems like this guy comes up all sincere and Jesus smacks it away. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Don't call me good. And you got to ask why. So in our culture, we, we like excess in everything, especially words. We use words all the time when they don't necessarily mean what they're supposed to mean. Like, for example, if you Google most overused words, at the top of most of those lists is going to be awesome. You know that word awesome? We use it all the time. Awesome means, and I'm going to quote the definition for you, awesome means extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension or fear inspiring awe. That's what awesome means. It's soccer update time, everybody. Yesterday, I coached three-year-olds. Yesterday... My kiddo had a game, and uh, it was interesting. We played this other team, and we get there about five minutes before, and they're all there, like, doing drills. And it's me carrying a mat with my three-year-old and none of my other players that are on the team. Uh, turns out, out of the seven, only four showed up. One of them wept the whole time on the sidelines. I'm beginning to think it's my coaching. And, and it never played with us. And it was really just my kid and another kid that played the whole time against this other team of three or four, right? And they did fine. They got killed. They did fine. But at the end of the game, everybody kept saying, you know, Eleanor, you, know, you played so awesome. I'm going to read the definition again. <laughs> Extremely impressive or daunting. Inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. Inspiring awe. She did fine, but you know what it wasn't? <laughs> awesome. We told her it was awesome because we use words however we want to. The Grand Canyon is awesome. Three-year-old soccer is not that, everybody. 
why Jesus says, why are you calling me good, is in a first century context, a Jewish person never used the word good to describe anything but God. It goes back to the scriptures. It goes back to Psalm 16, apart from you I have no good thing, or Psalm 14 when it says you are the only good that I have. There's all these texts in the Old Testament where the only way that you can describe good was to God himself. So this man, this rich man, walks up to Jesus and says, good teacher. And if you're in the first century, you knew exactly what he did. He just described something that we only ascribe to God to somebody else. And so Jesus says, why do you call me good? I think he's doing it for a couple reasons. One, I think he's making sure that this man knew exactly what he was claiming. And two, I think he was putting this man to a decision point, hinting that you're more near than you realize to what you're saying. So he's saying to this man, why do you call me good, implying that I am the thing that we ascribe to God. It continues in the text in verse uh, 19. What must I do to, inter- to inherit eternal life? It says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The man said to Jesus, teacher, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all of these since my youth. Again, when I first read this, I thought this dude was just bragging when he said, I've done all these things. When he says, since my youth, in the first century in Jewish face now, when you're 12, that's when you begin to actually take responsibility for implementing the law in your own life. That's why they call it bar mitzvah. And so he's basically saying, since I took responsibility for living out the law, that's all I've done, wholeheartedly. I've spent my days, my weeks, my months, and my years trying to do the best I can to live into the promises of God for me. His earnestness continues to come through. I don't think he was bragging. I think he's trying to say, I'm trying my best to get everything that God has for me. What's the path to eternal life? And what we have in the next couple verses is we have two singularities that only happen in Mark one time. And Jesus says, he looked at the man and said, he felt love for him. I love that line. It's the only time in Mark that he talks about Jesus having love for someone. He clearly did, don't get me wrong, but it's the only time Jesus utters the words, I have love for an individual person in the entire gospel. That word there, look, in the Greek means more than just he saw, it means he scrutinized. It means that he judged. It means that basically he measured up this man's claims to his life. It means basically that he's saying, are you legit or are you valid? It's to examine or look intently at. So he's looking at this man's claims and he's saying, do you really want to know? Do you really want to know? Or are you just asking me to ask me to fill up another thing on your bucket list of goods? And when it says that he loved the man, I think the answer is he clearly saw that his intention matched his passion. It's a beautiful moment where this guy just wants more of God. And, and, and so Jesus is going to answer him. So go back to the Steve Nash story. I, I stop Steve Nash. He's getting on the bus. His team is waiting for him. I have a little Lego Steve Nash man. I am a 19-year-old kid, and I am more excited than a middle school kid at a Justin Bieber concert 10 years ago. And, and I said, hey, man, Steve, I, I, I'm from Dallas. You're my favorite player. I have a Lego man of you. It's right here. And I shoved it in his face. And at this point, he's rightfully scared. <laughs> And, and he says, you know, he just looks at me, drops his phone, he looks at me, and he can tell that I'm, I'm a real fan of this guy, you know? He said, man, can I sign something for you? I said, no, I just wanted to meet you, thanks, and I ran away, <laughs> you know? I was totally awestruck. I think this is what's happening with Jesus in this guy. He recognizes his intentions, and when you, man, 
when you approach God with this kind of intentionality and this kind of heartfelt longing for more of him, he always meets you there every single time. But the story is going to go on and show us it. It might not look like what you think it is or what you want it to be. And so Jesus says, okay, if you really want to know, he said, you lack one thing. Go and sell whatever you have and give the money to the poor. and You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. This was another point growing up where I misunderstood this text. You know, I grew up with some shame, guilt, 1990s Christian baggage, you know? And, and I always thought that this text was God trying to see if this man really loved him. I always thought that this text was when Jesus or God throws things in our way so we might prove our devotion so God might love us back with the devotion that we proved. The problem is that's not the God of the Bible, ever. God doesn't do that. No good father would do that. No good father would put things in the way of his kids just to trip them up, just to prove that you really love your father. This is not what God does. I don't think in the text what he's doing is saying, prove your devotion to me, and then you can follow me. I also don't think in this text what he's saying is that if you have wealth, sell it all so that you can be a better Christian. Let's talk just for two seconds on wealth in the scriptures. In the first century world, if you had wealth, it was seen that you had blessings from God. That's why when Jesus says it's hard for a wealthy person to be saved, a couple verses down, his disciples are like, I'm sorry, what? I thought this meant that God loved you. And so what Jesus is doing is differentiating between blessings of the world being blessed by God. But, but in the scriptures, Old Testament specifically, God uses wealth to bless his people. God wants us to have all the things that we need and want. God is an abundant God. God does not hate wealth. God hates wealth when it becomes a, 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 a hurdle for us to see his goodness in our life. Again, this, a couple of verses down is where we get the verse where Jesus says, it's tougher for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. That's literally impossible. He says it that way because we've said it here before. It's really tough to see that you need something when you have everything that you have. This is the essence of the tension of a culture that values having. So we, we begin to believe if we have enough stuff, then we're good enough. If we have enough stuff, then we're loved. We have enough stuff. I found my identity. And so what Jesus does in this text is not necessarily call us all to, to sell our houses right now, although not a bad idea in this market, everybody. But you've got to live somewhere, you know? What Jesus does is he gets into the core of this man's being. He, he sees the thing that he needs the most because there's something he's holding back from God. What he's doing is actually calling out the things that he loves more than he loves this good teacher, the promises of God or the ways of God. You know, it's really interesting. We live in a culture that has so much stuff, but seemingly we are less and less happy. There's a, an article <coughs> that Arthur Brooks writes um, every two weeks. It's called How to Build a Life. I think it's in the Atlantic, and he quotes this. He says, one of the greatest paradoxes in American life is that while on average existence has gotten more comfortable over time, Happiness has fallen. He says, amid these advances in quality of life across the income scale, average happiness is decreasing in the U.S. The General Social, uh, Social Survey, which has been measuring social trends for Americans every two years since 1972, shows a long-term gradual decline in happiness and a rise in unhappiness from 1988 to right now. The Swedish business professor Carl Sennerstrom writes in his book, The Happiness Fantasy, that corporations and advertisers have promised satisfaction but have led people instead 
into a rat race of joyless production and consumption. For the material comforts in the U.S. life have increased for many of our people. The things that give life meaning have not increased. That's why you can get up here and say, we seemingly have more stuff. We seemingly are richer people. We seemingly have access to more goods, but we also are more depressed. We're more anxious. And we're more unhappy. We don't get happier as society gets richer because we chase the wrong things. And it leads us to what the rich young ruler was, and I'd posit what we are. We are a satiated people, but we are not a satisfied people. In a, in a definition of if we define ourselves by stuff, what drives us, if that's what drives us, we will always be a satiated but not satisfied people. You'll have and not have all at the same time. And this is what this man did. So Jesus looks at him and says, what you really worship is this other thing. If you want full life from me, if you want full life from God, you got to give this over to God. You have to recognize and realize that the ways of God are bigger and better than your stuff. And so he says to this man, the thing that he needed to hear the most, go and sell all the things you have and give it to the poor. And the society that values, that idolizes, that defines each other by what we have, I wonder if we need to ask the same questions. Here's the second singularity in our text. The first one was Jesus says, this man whom he loved. The second, verse 22. But at this statement, the man looked sad and went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. This is the only example in the Gospels, especially in Mark, of somebody being called to discipleship and saying no. Some writers talk about how sad this text is. One says, in fact, this verse has been described as the saddest verse in the whole Bible. The only time we see Jesus reach out to somebody and they say, I'm good. And here's the shocking part, is he knew it too, and he was sad. That's what breaks my heart. The word there in the Greek when it talks about sadness means to be shocked or appalled, or one translation is overcast in the sky. It's gloomy. He knew it was happening, and he walked away sad. Because in the end, Jesus said, choose me over your stuff, and, and he couldn't do, do it. Here's the deal, and this is the truth of possessions. This is what this story is getting at. This is coming at it from the lie that you are what you have or are what you own. We are a culture that is possessed by possessions, but the problem with unchecked possessions, the silent truth about a culture that identifies around stuff, is that before you know it, your possessions will actually possess you, not the other way around. Before you know it, the things you own actually own you. It's a tough place to be. That's why Jesus warns against it so often. That's why Jesus warns against rich people finding the kingdom of God. That's why he says it's hard, is because before you know it, your stuff that you own actually owns you instead of being defined by Jesus. And that's the question we have to ask. Do we own stuff? Or does our stuff own us? This guy got asked that question, and he walked away sad because he found the answer. It's a beautiful and sad story about the truth of cultures that are wrapped up in possessions. And the Bible talks about it over and over again. Luke 9 says, what good is it for a man to gain the world but forfeit his very soul? In Mark 4, there's a parable about the seeds, and, and basically it says one of these seeds is going to be choked away by the worldly cares of the world, the seductiveness of wealth, and the desire for other things. And it will make you produce nothing because you love stuff more than you love the gospel. You love possessions more than you love Jesus. You love what you own and are defined by it over being defined by what Christ did for you. And this man is an embodiment of that. And I think the most heartbreaking part to me is that he didn't know it until it was too late. 
And so as a culture, as a culture that has a lot of stuff, we have to stop down and ask the same question because Jesus is calling us into a better way to own things, to have things. There's a, a, a story two chapters later. I'll read some to you in, in Mark uh, 14. And it, it's this woman that comes to the temple to give tithe away. And when she's coming to give away her tithe, I'll just read it. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins worth less than a penny. He called his disciples and said to them, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in to the offering uh, box more than all the others and other people putting in a lot more money. Verse 44, it says, For they all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty. But she put in what she had to live on, everything that she had. What she put in there was, was literally the lowest denomination of coin in the first century world. It was based off of this one coin that was a denarius. It's a day's wage if you were working class. What she put in was the equivalent of six minutes worth of work. And Jesus says this, uh, it just gathers material goods. But he also says that we are not defined by what we have, but what we have given so that others might see God. This is what defines us as people who have stuff. Not by what we have, but by what we have given so that others might see the beauty and the goodness uh, and the centrality of Jesus. That's why Jesus looked at this young ruler and said, give everything you have to the poor. He didn't just say give it up. He said, give it all to the poor. But he could tell that man was defined by what he had. And he wasn't being defined by what he had been given for others. On, on Good Friday, we had our service in here. I talked about it last week. It was so good. <laughs> um, and... And one thing I loved about it was it was all about what Jesus has given for you, called the downward mobility of Christ. The definition of Good Friday was good because Jesus chose to give away his status. He chose to give away his respect. He chose to give away his right to be right. He chose to give away those around him. He chose to give away uh, his, his power. He chose to give away his life because... What defines us as followers of Jesus is not what we have. What defines us as followers of Jesus is what we have given away so that people might see more of Jesus. That's why every Sunday we get up here and we say we are a generous people because God has been generous to us. And so find some way to be generous today. And we say whether it's at CBC, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's another church you really like because they changed your life, whether it's a, a missionary or a nonprofit, find some way to be generous because that's how people see more of God. Not by a church that whores, but by a church that gives away. That's the beauty of following Jesus in a culture that oftentimes tries to define you by what you have. We're so radically different that we take joy in giving away what we have so that people might see the goodness of God. So, so today is pretty simple in application, right? Go give stuff away <laughs> for the glory of God. I had a friend of mine, and I, this is probably 10 years ago, we had this really cool idea that for Lent, instead of stopping something, we were going to give something away every single day um, for 40 days. We made this time and place to show up to talk about it, and he showed up and I forgot. But it was a really good idea. I'm going to do it one, one year, you know? This idea that in a culture that pushes on you, your definition is what you have and what you can accumulate, maybe we need to kick back and say, yeah, but, but really I want to be defined by what I give away, not what I get. There's freedom in that. And hear me, this is not a shame-based sermon, so if you have Amazon coming to your house today, enjoy that God has been good to you. The question is, how do you see that stuff? And do you hold it with a closed fist or an open hand? Do you take joy in your getting or in your giving? 
Jesus says in a culture, the gospel says in a culture, the Bible says in a culture that so often tries to define you by the stuff you have, Jesus was defined by the stuff he gave away. That's a healthy perspective to have if we're being defined by Jesus all the time. And that's what the first church did. You know why they were so different? (laughs) Because they were so different than the culture around them. You know why people saw the beauty of the movement of Jesus? Because they were so radically and starkly different than those people around him. I was reading an article a couple weeks ago, and this pastor was talking about that as a church, we've tried for too long to get culture to like us, so we've tried to be like culture. And he said, it doesn't work because they're never going to like us. And I'm thinking, cool, right? So as a culture, instead of being like culture, to get culture to like us, what we need to do is be not like culture so that people might see the difference and the beauty in God over the values of our culture. And so in Acts 2, these people got together and they said, this is not my stuff. I'm going to put it all in the middle of this pot, if you will. And we're going to give it away so that people might see the goodness of God that radically, that radically changed the first century world. We're going to give things away so that people might see God's greatness radically changes in cultures that are about accumulating stuff. We live in a culture that values and prides itself in accumulating stuff. I think if we're defined by Jesus, we take more joy in giving it away. It's a beautiful reminder to push back against the lies of the culture we live in and live into the good promises that Jesus has for us. That we are defined as followers of Jesus by what we have given away, not what we have accumulated. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you have defined life in ways different than the world we live in, the broken, hard, unhappy world that we live in. Over the next five weeks as we talk about these things, Holy Spirit, just convict us where we have bought into the lies of culture and give us a boldness and a courage to live into the ways of Jesus that defines us as followers of Jesus. And might we do it in such a profound way that people have no other choice but to see the beauty of God. God, might we be a generous people today. So when people ask about why, we can say because Jesus has given so much so that we might live. And that is what defines us. We pray this in Jesus' name.